Today on The Black Goat, we have a special guest, Jamil Zaki from Stanford University. We're going to talk about what it's like to be replicated and the merits of popularizing science, and a letter that questions whether neuroscience is legit. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. With me, as always, are my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Sanjay. And Samin Vizier. Hi, Samin. Hi, Sanjay. And joining us today is a special guest, Jamil Zaki. Uh, Jamil is an assistant professor at Stanford, and he is director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Laboratory. He's also co-founder of The People's Science, a nonprofit that promotes engagement between scientists and the public. Uh, we'll be talking to Jamil more about his work uh, during the main segment, but we've asked him to sit in for the whole episode today for the uh, letter and all of that. So welcome, Jamil. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's, um, I feel lucky to be here on your 13th episode. <laughs> <laughs> we Wait, invited so, you specifically for that reason. So I have yeah. to ask, Jamil, do you listen to our podcast? I do. I, do? I'm a... Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's great to, to finally... That, that's uh, kind of to, shocking to, to, to me because, like, when I hang out with my friends, if I, like, mention, like, oh, yeah, I recorded a podcast episode yesterday, they're all, like, they get really uncomfortable and awkward, and they're like, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I don't listen to your podcast. And I'm like, no, it's okay. I wouldn't either if I were you. But I think it's really funny that, like, actually, I think a pretty small percentage of my friends listen, so I never want to assume that somebody does listen to it just because your guest doesn't mean... So in episode four, how many times did Sanjay swear? Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, if you say I, you uh, listen, gosh, this is this is going deep. Um, Pop quiz. I, um, <laughs> uh, give, give the over under twenty. Um, <laughs> so I, I we were we were driving around in the car recently, and uh, my wife. We were planning like a road trip up to Portland, which is like a two hour drive, and my wife was like, "Oh, we should listen to." And my son was there. And she's like, oh, we should listen to Daddy's podcast on the way up to Portland. I just look at her like, you know, I couldn't say this out loud, but I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, <laughs> he's, he's, so now we know that Kristen get, doesn't listen to the podcast on a regular yeah. basis. I know, I know. Well, that's what she was saying. She's like, I haven't listened to it yet, so I want to, you know, I want to, I want to listen to it. Um, but it, then it occurred to me, like, I was like, could we do, like, one, like, swear-free episode that I can play for my son? <laughs> but I'm not sure I could get through a whole episode. Can't you just Let's, Yeah, I'll make, you, I'll make a cleaned version. I'll just put, like, a goat scream <laughs> over yeah. every person. That's right. A radio edit. That's what you guys need. By, by the way, shout out to goats. This is probably the coolest, at least my favorite farm animal of all time. Okay. They're cute, very active. And they sound so much like people. There's a lot of great... The sound is you can amazing. Just go to YouTube just like and you can find a lot of goats cut into songs. Alexa and I were looking some up yeah, earlier. Yeah, pretty awesome. Um, yeah, just a, great, just a great farm. Is, are you guys well, inspired by goats? How did I have the... to say, I was having buyer's remorse this morning because another animal that I like a lot is the hippo. And I think we maybe chose the wrong animal for our name. Because there's this video, maybe we can put it in the show notes, of this baby hippo that was born premature. And so they have to like go in underwater with it and, like teach it how to push off from the ground to get to the air to breathe it's just so cute Aww. so yeah i'm kind so of the, like i'm torn between goats and hippos so um for people who have met samin they know that um samin is generally pretty flat affect um <laughs> the most intense emotions i've ever seen samin express are when she's talking about hippos or maybe like 
Maybe, like, some other animals. I think you get pretty happy about goats, too. Mm. Um, and then when you went on that swing in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> At the Navy Pier. It's like the ha- happiest really you've ever cool. been. Yeah. Well, hippos would have been an interesting choice because they're, like, everybody thinks they're adorable, but they actually, they like, they're vicious people, killers. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> they, right. Like, the, the other... I think they kill more people in, in <laughs> Africa. They kill more people than all other large mammals combined. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. It's lot, they're, like... Yeah. You know, this baby hippo was yeah. like biting the scuba divers that were in the tank with it, but like it was, it's still young enough that that wasn't. But it was like biting everything, and I was like, "That's going to be a problem when it gets older." <laughs> I think one issue, if you had named your podcast after hippos, is that they're virtually mo- all monochromatic, right? So that's true. There'd be no added information if you said the dark. Well, gray but it could hippo. be a different a different adjective. Like, I don't know. Maybe we could describe the hippo's personality. Yeah. Hmm. Like the, the, the stubborn uh, hippo. The stubborn hippo. <laughs> so how I, we haven't we haven't actually talked about where the name came from. Is that are we going to be like a rock band and be all mysterious about it, or are we just gonna are we gonna finally tell people? I think the truth will be so disappointing. This is the behind <laughs> the music. The the truth is, we, yeah, we we decided to start a podcast, and then we were sitting around trying to decide what to call it, and we would just like throw out something. Like, I, I remember having this Skype call where it would be like, I'd say something, and you guys would roll your eyes like, that's lame. And then I would Google it, and it would turn out like it was the name of something else anyway. Mm-hmm. And we had a couple of good ones in there that turned out to be taken. I really liked Goat Rodeo, yeah. but it turns out there's another oh, podcast called Goat Rodeo We were already. like, we were set on Goat Rodeo. I was so excited. I actually have yep. the Gmail address, and I think maybe even the twitter account i don't know i have like several goat rodeo things that keep popping up anyway yeah. i'm still so sad about is, it i think it was so what? it was because samin loves goats and, and so we kind of latched onto goat and then somehow it was like a combination of like the black swan like the popper idea of falsifying things and black sheep yeah. <laughs> and i mean literally we were about to start recording our first episode and we're like we ha- we need like it was down to like minutes we're like we need a name <laughs> so so there's there's our origin story do you um, want to say what your other favorite was samir or do you want to save that for when you i think i, think I want to save start it. an instagram account <laughs> yeah, right. oh yeah i have an instagram account what are you talking yeah, about <laughs> The black goat is definitely more dignified and mysterious than goat rodeo. Well, goat, goat rodeo is a... is a synonym for clusterfuck, which is how I found the name. Oh. I googled like what is a synonym for clusterfuck, and it turns out that it means not just a clusterfuck, but like a group of people or things that are like hard to like kind of like herding cats. So I was like, that's like perfect for the three of us. Plus, like the clusterfuck angle kind of describes my views on psychology sometimes, <laughs> and it has goat in it. Yeah, I'm still sad about it. Uh. And what is so, the, what is Goat Rodeo? Is it a podcast? Is it a YouTube channel? Yeah, there's somebody. Somebody had there's. It's like a podcast network, and somebody had kind of reserved the name online, and so we were we were sort of like, well, like it was about something. I don't even remember what it was about. It was about something different, but it was kind of like you know we don't want people to like go into iTunes and search for us and find this other thing or whatever, um, you know. Yeah, so. But so Jamil, you were you were saying before we started recording, um, you wanted to uh, follow up on something from from a previous episode from episode ten. Um, you had you had an idea for it sounded like something out of like Thunderdome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. I, I, well, you know, I was listening to 
episode 10 and, and heard you guys talking about how the job market um, sort of can feel like a tournament sometimes and, and sort of are there could there actually be a tournament style kind of <laughs> section of, of, of a job search or interview? And, you know, I've had this idea for probably 10 years and I haven't really talked about it to many people because it's probably a bad idea, but I'd love your guys' take on it. So That's what you're here for. Yeah. <laughs> here are all my bad ideas. So I at one point went to, um, to this show that was called Iron Artist. And the concept was it was the same as Iron Chef, mm. except they gave this, these art collectives a concept. And I remember the time that, that I went, it was man's inhumanity towards man. And then they all had the same materials, like styrofoam and wood and paint. Um, and they had an hour, and they had to prepare a piece of art, um, you know, that, that spoke to the theme. And I, I immediately thought, gosh, we should just do this with psychology. There should be, you know, sort of you get a, a theme or a concept, and then you get 24 hours, a budget with which to run MTurk participants, mm-hmm. You know, and then see what you come up with. What can you sort of, how can you generate hypotheses, design a study, I code it up, run it? I think that's how some people do research right now. <laughs> <laughs> are you though? <laughs> but, but at least if people are doing research that way, can't we just coordinate so that yeah, they're doing right, it at yeah. the same time and we just pick one of them yeah. to, uh, to get whatever the prize is It's like a hackathon. Like we could like add on a day... To SPSP, and the last day is like a hackathon, and everyone has 24 hours to design the best study and run it. That they can I feel like you guys it. are focusing on the merits of this idea for doing good research, but I feel like the point of it is to select the winner, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like if you came in on a job interview, and it's like, okay, who comes up with like the best study in the 24 mm-hmm. hours that they're they're here? That sounds great to me. And it gets rid of all of these problems of like, oh, I wonder if, you know, they're just like a product of their advisor or they had like a bunch of advantages because of the school so, they were at, you know. Wait, are we taking this seriously? Cause... <laughs> <laughs> so like one, one thing that I, I worry about with one reason why people say they don't take job interviews very seriously and I think they shouldn't take job interviews very seriously, but it's hard to resist is it measures so much like how comfortable people are in an academic environment and being evaluated and so on. And I remember one job search we did when I was back at WashU where it came down to two candidates, one of whom their parents were academics and one of whom came from a very different background. And so like guess who was more at ease meeting new people and talking to them for 30 minutes at a time and thinking on their feet in an evaluative context. And so that those kinds of inequalities, especially in a high stakes context, I think would. So wait, are you saying that's a reason this would be a bad idea or (laughs) a reason it would be a good idea? I was thinking bad because like the level of anxiety you have. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in some I ways, think, it I think you're projecting, Samin. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I think, uh, you know, I, th- I think maybe you're a little afraid of Jamil's idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think you think that you would lose. Uh, no, but I would be the judge in this scenario, right? <laughs> right that's right. You know, one one positive for it is, you know, in Iron Chef, there's not one level of evaluation, right? There are multiple stages of evaluation. So people get chopped. Oh, no, wait, I'm thinking of chopped now. I've just... I've just uh, transposed cooking shows on top of each other. I can't believe how many competitive cooking shows you know about. It, it's it's probably my hobby to watch these things, but um, but you know. Do you it, watch the Great British Bake Off? That's the one that I've missed. Oh, 
but you know, you could imagine different stages of evaluation. You could, if there are four contestants, you could eliminate one at the hypothesis stage <laughs> and one at the design stage, and that way you load on not whether the results come out all you know beautifully the way that you predicted, but just whether you design a good study. So what's the equivalent of, like, the rose in this scenario? Like, what do we give the... <laughs> Is there a rose in Iron Chef? That would be so awesome. <laughs> I think at this point we're just... I guess in... we know what my guilty pleasure is. <laughs> I think we're just in psychology reality TV show um, at this point. Uh, but, but, yeah, I don't know what the equivalent would be. Well, I, I think that's, I mean, that's kind of, an, I, I noticed that you haven't said anything about IRBs, and that's, <laughs> there are some times when I, I basically, I, like, I'll see reality TV and I'll be like, this is this is what we could be doing if we didn't have IRBs. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not a good thing, but they're, they're basically just, like, fucking with people with no one telling them they can't. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that would be the, like, the, the big buzzkill on the, uh, the iron psychologist, right, would be the the IRB but if we maybe if we film it in international waters (laughs) (laughs) just go go somewhere like you know the the libertarian paradise or something and and just be like there's no regulation here you can do what you want wherever Craig Ventner did it went to uh to do his weird uh genome stuff that's where we'd need to film (laughs) <laughs> right, like like some some like Elon Musk's like you know artificial island in the middle of the Pacific or something where you know. As where, a side note, the Libertarian Paradise sounds like it could be a really good show name in its own right or show concept, yeah. reality TV show like kind of like a Big Brother kind of thing. Or the Thunderdome. Isn't... <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, I we. We should probably move on to our letter, and I think uh, Alexa, you've picked out a good one for for having Jamil join us this week. Uh, do you want to? Should we? Should we do the letter? Yeah, let's do the letter. All, All right, right, let's do the letter. Um, dear the black goat. So I keep running into this criticism of neuroscience regarding the ambiguity in identifying patterns of brain activity that are truly unique to a given phenomenon. Put crudely, the criticism seems to be that because brain activity is so abundant in numerous brain regions simultaneously, determining precisely which activity X phenomenon is responsible for is unreasonably open to interpretation, thus enabling particularly erroneous, biased, and unfounded conclusions. The most extreme criticism I've heard relates neuroscience to phrenology. I'm sure there are examples where this criticism gets crushed, but I believe this criticism is usually aimed at neurostuff more generally. Basically, how do we know the legitimacy of neuroscience? Sincerely, Anonymous. I feel like this person put a lot of big words in that letter. That was kind of a struggle to get through. <laughs> yeah. Is the is the punch is the sort of Cliff Notes version is neuroscience bullshit? Uh, I yeah, so. I think kind so. of. Yeah, yeah. We 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 when we have guests on, we we try to ask them if like the the thing that they base <laughs> yeah. their life's work around <laughs> is complete crap. Um, so uh, <laughs> yeah, defend your livelihood. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, gosh, uh, it's a it's a great question, sort of. Um, there's there's a lot to say. I'll, I'll try to I'll try to keep it a little bit brief. Um, so you know, I, I think that cognitive neuroscience is a giant field that have different that has contains different communities who really approach it in different ways. So I would, and I I always consider myself more a psychologist who uses neuroimaging as a tool as opposed to uh, you know someone who identifies mostly as a cognitive neuroscientist i think that that actually uh, bears pretty importantly on the way that i see neuroscience being useful so i think that there are 
other folks like Russ Poldrack who could or Tor Wager who could aptly defend the the ability of neuroscience to really tell us you know to really map out the representation of a of a psychological state but for me I I, I think of neuroimaging as just another way to test hypotheses about um, about psychology so you know if if you one question would be for instance are two states um, or two experiences different from each other or similar to each other and the same way that you could use self-report or behavior to separate those things or bring them together um, you know I tend to ask the question well do they produce similar or different patterns of activity in the brain I don't tend to try to plant a huge flag on a brain region and say well because I get activity here that means that this is happening in the mind right that's what's called reverse inference and it's it's uh, you know pretty muddy water, um, but but I do try to say well you know if, if we can tell the difference between two conditions for instance um, in the in the brain that then 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 that might mean that they're distinguished in some way and if we can find overlap between two things um, that feel or look on their surface to be different then maybe they share some underlying process that's of interest. Yeah, I feel like my attitude towards social neuroscience in particular social and personality neuroscience is like it's in such early stages that I'm kind of like waiting for you guys to figure stuff out and then I'll like I feel like I'm kind of tuning out in the like I and I think that that's I hope that's like the attitude that people take towards fields very different from their own like in the early days of the debates about personality structure I assume like people who weren't working on that were not paying attention and were just like, okay, well, just tell me when you figured it out. And I feel like that's kind of, maybe we're coming out of that stage, but like when I was earlier in my career, that I feel like that's where social and personality neuroscience was at, is like you guys were figuring out your methods and like how to ask the questions and stuff like that. And I, I thought what I thought was interesting is like a lot of people who weren't trained in it jumping on that bandwagon, which like to me... I think there are some methods where you can do that, but neuroscience doesn't seem like the kind of method where you can just dabble in it. And so I think for me anyway, that's where like some of this negative perceptions come from is like people dabbling in it or like thinking that you can just like drop in and, you know, ask one question with neuroscience and then take it in a different direction. It, I just feel like it's too young and too early for it to be at that stage where it's, we know exactly how to get answers to the questions. Yeah, I mean, this is this is it's a pretty huge issue, and and you know, I, I think this is a pretty broad letter, and so you know, we could go a lot of different directions with it. I mean, one one thing that I, you know, I felt a lot in the early days of sort of social and personality neuroscience, and and still often feel is that, and and Jamil, maybe you can speak to this. Like a lot of times, it feel when I actually look at how the research is being designed, that it feels like it's. More the the actual designs are better geared towards answering questions about the brain than using psychology to answer questions about the brain than vice versa. And some of this relates to to reverse inference, um, but some of it also relates to the relative maturity of the different fields, right? So, you know, you you have some well understood social cognitive process, and then you you know you do a neuroimaging study. And it feels more like, oh, we found out what like this little bit of tissue might be involved in than it does like, oh, and you know, there was this big debate early on about like can social or can neuroscience constrain theory and social psychology. I never really I had sort of tracked that debate and I never really 
found any of the yes it can answers to be satisfactory um i i haven't you know maybe maybe the field is advanced to a point where it is but that that is often you know i look at like pain work for example and people say like we could you know we could tell if somebody's in pain by looking at their brain and i'm like well how do we know that that you know we could get around self-report it's like how do we know that that region of the, anything we know about what that region of the brain has to do with pain is because of self-reports. So it's just like coming back around in a circle. And, and anyway, uh, you know, so I, I still sometimes struggle with this where I see papers that are, are being portrayed or couched as like this is making psychology advances. And it actually feels more like, no, the psychology is helping us make neuroscience advances. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that, Sanjay, because um, in the letter, the uh, letter writer says that one of the most extreme criticisms of neuroscience relates neuroscience to phrenology. And actually, I think I've heard some um, good defenses of the utility of doing some brain mapping research first. Like you say, Samin, in the early stages before you know we start to rely heavily on that data for, um, for inference More and for constraining psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that normally people say that as like a... Um, as an insult, like, oh, you're just doing brain mapping research. But that sounds like really important first steps to do before we can sort of rely on that as a tool. I don't know what you think about that, Jamil. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, brain mapping to, to me is intrinsically less interesting than using uh, the brain to sort of test psychological hypotheses, as, as I said earlier. But that was the first generation of neuroimaging, especially in, in social and personality neuroscience. Sanjay, you, you nailed it, right? It was sort of, where does this thing happen? Which is not a question about psychology at all. It's, a, it's just a question about the brain. But I think that with that information in hand, you can try to, um, you know, you can try to then test psychological questions through neuroimaging. So, you know, one, one example that I, that I like, it's a sort of a, a classic, would be visual imagery, right? So, you know, back in the days that Steve Coslin and Xenon Polition, who's the best, that's the best name for a bad guy in the debate. <laughs> it's like no vowels in yeah, right. letter, last name. But uh, when they were debating the nature of imagery, you know, when, when you imagine something, is it really like you're seeing it or not? Coslin had a bunch of great behavioral data suggesting that in fact, when you imagine something, it is like you're seeing it, you know, through mental rotation experiments and so forth. But the kind of nail in the coffin to many people, not all, was when he found that when he asked people to imagine some some visual stimulus, he got activity in V1, right? And through brain mapping, we, we neuroscientists pr- felt pretty strongly that, that part of the brain processes basic visual information. So Coslin was able to make this very strong point that there's an overlap between these two things that you might think are actually quite different, imagining something and really seeing it. Now, you know, I think that that's a great example of the use of neuroimaging. I also think it's a great example of why neuroimaging is not inherently more informative than other techniques, right? Coslin's behavioral experiments are, to me, extremely convincing. And so I think that part of the issue sociologically to why neuroscience gets so much pushback is because it's overblown in the first place. You know, I think that mm-hmm. if I, I certainly don't think it's a worse technique or a less informative technique than self-report or behavior or physiology or genetics. But I think that it was viewed for a while as a more informative mm-hmm. technique. And that's, you know, really problem. I think that, that if, 
if you say, if you say that one tool is better than than all the rest, then well, first of all, you're probably wrong. But second <laughs> of all, there are going to be a lot of people who then feel that feel that they want to not just say no, it's not better, but in fact say it's it's actually worse, right? And and I think that I, I just you know not to get all kumbaya here, but but I do feel <laughs> as though you know the the best neuroscience research, in my opinion. Is is in deep conversation with other forms of, of data collection, right? And and uses neuroimaging as as yet another point of converging evidence um, to support or disconfirm theory. I'm gonna pick a fight here. I think the best <laughs> villain name is definitely Shabilsky and not Pichelin. <laughs> <laughs> if only they had an argument amongst themselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Uh, cool. Well, yeah, the, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I'm glad we picked this letter for this week because I, I feel like, uh, um, Alexa, you would have been, among the three of us, you would have been called on to defend neuroscience and it would have been like me and Samin ganging up <laughs> yeah. on you. But now it's like two on two. Uh, Jamil makes fight. it pretty hard to gang up on him. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I feel like but, I have I have to like say something controversial, otherwise this is too boring. Well, so like, okay, yeah, I'll fight with you a little bit, Jamil. So I I think that neuroscience has to um, reach a higher threshold as a tool um, to justify its use because it's so expensive and so hard to get high power. Mm. So I think that it should be way better tool than like self report in order to justify. It being used. That's true. So it's yeah. because it's not only expensive, it should be more expensive than it is, right? right? I mean, it, because you should be running a hundred people in every right. imaging experiment, right. or at least and fifty. And probably the modal study these days is. I mean, if you. you know, just the fact that you get behavioral results in neuroimaging studies is is weird, right? I mean, with twenty people. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we use lots of repeated right. uh, mm-hmm. re- repeated sure. measures within subject, but. You know, it's still uh, it's it's not very many people, and, and so, I, so I, I hear you. I think that I, I do think that in the first generation of neuroimaging, it was almost this reflexive thing that's like, okay, let's take any psych experiment and put it in the scanner, and we'll have yeah. something right. new to say, yeah, right, and and we'll publish a paper. And I remember a time that you know people would feel that if they scanned something, they needed to publish something out mm-hmm. of that data set. To justify the expense. Now that's yeah. a very dangerous right. state Sufficient. of affairs that yeah. leads to tons of false positives. And so, I mean, I agree with you that there is a high level of, you know, that, that there should be a high level of evidence, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you get. Well, I would I would push back, I guess, and say, well, there should be a high level of evidence from any study. Sure. Yeah. Um, I do right. think that you know one nice thing about neuroimaging is that it can bring ideas that feel far-flung in, in, in psychology together by putting them together in a yeah. three-dimensional space, right? Mm-hmm. You can sometimes get connection between things um, that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise mm-hmm. because they occur in similar sort of parts of the brain mm-hmm. now. I know in social neuroscience, there's a whole lot of movement around sort of figuring out whether the kind of our processing of information about other people is domain general or domain right. specific. Mm-hmm. Not that that's a new question, but it's one that I think neuroscience is helping with a lot but yeah, yeah. I so it, but it feels like the some of the, the the boring stuff is actually it's become clear how important that is right so like in the costling example you gave that 
the qual like how how well that speaks to the underlying issue depends a lot on a reverse inference from v1 you mm -hmm. know on 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 how confident we are that when you see activation in in v1 that it's it's got that it's got this interpretation that you know some somebody's seeing things in their mind or whatever and you know a lot of the the kind of brain mappy stuff that's happening now you know i think about your colleague Russ Poldrack and Tali Arconi and some of the work that they're doing is trying to to bring that you know, do that foundational work so that people can do those kinds of inferences a little bit better with more complex phenomena, you know, and it, it did feel sort of in the early days, I, I feel like this has kind of been an interesting shift. Like, I think now funding agencies are recognizing that they have to spend more money, um, you know, per study. I think co cognitive and social neuroscientists are recognizing that they have to run larger studies and pool data sets. And it's interesting watching, like, there's this huge revolution in genetics where people used to run these 100-subject candidate gene studies, and it turned out they were all garbage because <laughs> no gene has enough of an effect for 100 studies to be anything more than noise. Um, and, and people are sort of, it's really interesting to see people moving in that direction in, in neuro, that's not there yet. Um, but yeah, in the, in the early days, it did feel sometimes like, you know, there were, there were some, you know, sometimes you'd pick up a journal or you'd look at what a lab was doing and it felt like they were just like flipping through a social psychology textbook going, let's do this in the <laughs> scanner, let's do this in a scanner. So it is, in some ways, the fact that it's gotten boring has been, a, I think, a, a really or, or that, that the boring stuff is getting done more is, is, uh, is, is actually a good sign. Yeah, I would also add, in addition to, like, Alexa's point of that because it's so expensive, I think, I think it should be held to a higher standard because it's so expensive. Like, explaining 2% of the variance with a cheap method might be worth it, but explaining 2% of the variance with a super expensive method might not be, except in, in really high-stakes situations. But another thing I would add that adds kind of a burden on neuroscientists is... If, if I don't know how strong the empirical evidence is for this, but anecdotally it's true with my undergrads and my non-academic friends, mm. um, is that people treat it as like the gospel truth. And so then I think that puts more responsibility on people who use neuroscience to be careful about the inferences they're drawing and the conclusions they're drawing. And I mean, I think beyond lay people, which is already a big, you know, like I, I've seen like news reporting on things where, you know, the behavioral studies don't convince people and then they say, oh, but it happens in the brain. They're like, oh, then it must be true. And then like in court testimony and things like that, like it, I think that if you show the brain lighting up, it, I think there's empirical evidence that, that that people interpret that much more seriously than behavioral studies. Mm -hmm. that's, that puts that's a true. burden on, on that field. Yeah, I, I think I think that's true as well. I mean, so... There is there are a number of studies like this, right? That sort of show people um, either really well, sort of well described or poorly described kind of inferences about you know the mind, right? So so sort of either you know I think one of them was the curse of knowledge, right? And there's they describe the curse of knowledge well in one case and poorly in another case, and that's crossed with the second factor, which is whether you tell people. And it happens in the frontal lobe, yeah. or you don't. <laughs> and it, neuroscience explanations increased how uh, how um, it, basically they did not affect um, how valid people thought good explanations were, but they made people believe that bad Shabby. explanations mm -hmm. were pretty good, right? Yeah. And that's that's another uh, I think a, a dangerous feature of neuroimaging. I don't I I, I hesitate to kind of dump that on the people doing the work. I think that that's just a, you know, I think that there's a lot of cases in which 
biological things feel truthy to people. Um, and, you know, and, and sort of neuroscience sits on this kind of razor's edge between social sci- the social sciences and the, and the natural sciences, which is a, a, probably a silly distinction anyways. But, you know, when, when, you, when you couch something as, okay, and this, we know where it happens in your brain, it, people are more likely to believe it. And I do think, I see that as a responsibility more in science communication than in mm-hmm. the, that sort of how I pick, like I, I wouldn't want to pick a, or when planning a study, think, well, wait a minute, someone right. might misinterpret right. this um, and not do the study because of that. But I certainly mm-hmm. think it's, neuroscientists' responsibility to be very careful in the way that they describe their work. And I think as teachers, we have that responsibility, too. Like, in my lab, I try, Mm -hmm. you know, my RAs always request readings on neuroscience, and it's a personality lab. (laughs) Like, there's not that much relevant neuroscience. (laughs) So, like, I'll I'll do it every once in a while, but I also try to educate them about, like, the overconfidence people have in biological explanations and so on. But biological explanations can also be dangerous because they... They can, you know, like the, I hate the term hardwired, you know, but yeah. it, it's sort of when people believe that something is happening in their brain, they, they often adopt a, a kind of fatalistic sense that it's there to stay, that it's, it's so, unchangeable. It's so interesting that people have that perception because, you know, I feel like if you think about it for three seconds, it's like, well, obviously the transient things that we think and the states that we have are also represented in our brains. But definitely, I think that like when people hear, that there's a neural signature of something or a neural mm-hmm. correlate. It's like they think that it's like completely unchangeable and it's mm-hmm. like we've evolved this way and like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you if yeah. you just Google the term hardwired, you mm-hmm. can see that it's the the highest concentration of bullshit that I've ever Wait, seen. Do you, hate, like... do you hate hardwired more or lights up more? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely hate hardwired more because lights up is a fair description of what the pictures actually look like, right? Okay. I mean, it's, it's a stupid thing to say. Yeah, the yeah. brain doesn't light up, but the pixels the on yeah, your yeah. computer screen do. Yeah. Okay. Right. There's, no, there's not even a picture of wires. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's cool. one interesting thing about sort of doing, sort of be, feeling like both a psychologist and a neuroscientist is that you really do get the full gamut of the way that the public perceives these fields, right? I mean, when I'm sitting on a plane, I can fully, not fully, but I can largely determine how a dialogue with the person sitting next to me will go by just when they ask me what I do, either saying I'm a psychologist or saying I'm a neuroscientist, right? If you say Mm -hmm. I'm a psychologist, well, you guys have probably gotten this too, right? It's like, well, let me tell you about my Uncle Ned or, oh, are you trying to shrink my head right now? Um, and if you say that you're a neuroscientist, it's more like, oh, well, that's over my that's over my head. I wouldn't understand. Yeah. Or, you know, like tell me something about the right. I mean, it's it's, it's a totally different stance that she gets. It's a fascinating sociological mm-hmm. experiment you can do at home. <laughs> well, that that might be a good segue into uh, um, into our our main segment, uh, uh, which is. Uh, we wanted to talk about you, Jamil. <laughs> and, uh, we wanted to ask you, I, I guess, about a couple of things. And we'll, I think we'll come back to this issue of communicating with the public, because that's one of the projects you're working on we want to ask you about. Um, and uh, we, we also wanted to, to talk to you um, 
about replication work because that's something actually you and Alexa so folks at home can't uh, uh, can't tell but Alexa and Jamil are sitting in Alexa's office together can we talk about uh, this for a second why are you in Tuscaloosa Jamil (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll give you the elevator version Uh, so my wife Landon uh, was born and raised in Tuscaloosa um, and uh, and has a gigantic family here. Um, and so when when our second daughter was born, uh, we figured I, I'm also on leave um, for for the rest of this calendar year. So we figured, well, rather than being by ourselves with two screaming uh, children in diapers, why don't we try to uh, offload them onto our extended family? No, not really, but just to be around mm-hmm. uh, family. Um, so we we have moved here temporarily, um, and I'm now I'm I'm bi coastal. Spend every other week here, and then a few days every other week back in California. Cool. Yeah, and and if you're if you're listening to this, you can't see this, but uh, um, (laughs) Alexa, uh, (laughs) Alexa and Jamil are. uh, We have to use headphones to record this, and and Alexa and Jamil are literally wired together. Um, They've got a pair of earbuds. (laughs) They're hardwired. This will never change. Their brains are hardwired together. Each one of them has one earbud in their ear, and they're they're dangling together, and it's it's pretty hilarious and kind of adorable. Actually, I'm going to grab a screenshot right now. <laughs> I, okay. Uh. <laughs> we were actually we were just talking about our branding before we called you, um, and Jamil was suggesting that I use the sign that I put up on my door that says that I'm recording a podcast. Um, we put that on our Facebook page or something. It's a really official looking sign. I think it's <laughs> maybe I made it with like purple highlighter or something. I think it's pink. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, so Jamil, uh, I guess that we, I wanted we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, now that you're literally tethered to Alexa um, <laughs> about a replication project because we we've talked about it, replication a fair amount on the podcast. That's something we're all interested in, and and you had the experience of uh, having one of your studies replicated by one of Alexa's graduate students, Brett Grant. Um, do you do you want to tell us about that, or Alexa? Do you want to kind of set it up? Yeah, so originally, um, Jamil's paper was in, I guess, a 2008 version mm-hmm. of Psych Science. And so these were some of the studies that the Reproducibility Project um, was looking for labs to replicate. Um, and so I was, I think I was originally contacted about a different study, which ended up not being included. And so eventually I agreed to do Jamil's, which was, um, for me, much more time-consuming. Um, so we, ne- we didn't end up um, finishing the study in time for the reproducibility project, but what we did end up doing is Brett did the study for um, a special issue of uh, the Journal of Research and Personality um, on replications. Um, so that's uh, where it ended up. Um, but, I mean, so I guess my initial reaction was that I was a little bit nervous to be replicating the paper of somebody who... I like a lot and <laughs> and sort of like look up to and so I was like oh, oh and, boy and for people listening who don't know Jamil has a reputation as a vicious attack dog <laughs> in the field who you know loves to tear people down I'm sure you can you picked up on that vibe already I think come here to make friends I'm like Omarosa <laughs> you do watch The Bachelor <laughs> <laughs> so so can you can you give us the like the two sentence version what was the study like what what was it about what was the the main sure the main finding. Um, yeah, so uh, this was. Um, maybe we should. 
Okay. So, someone out in the hall. The, the podcast is, uh, sign the is podcast. on my door, not my window. And there are now people on the, on the roof. It's real professional operation we got going on here, folks. <laughs> Should I soldier on? Um, yeah, keep going. Okay, all right. We'll, we'll let them join us. Um, yeah, so first of all, this might be the closest that a replicator and replicated person have ever been. We're feet yeah, away from each other, yeah. We are very close to <laughs> Maybe socially, uh, we're friends, but so um, so I've long been interested in empathy, and this was actually the study that um, that Alexa and Brett replicated was my first study in graduate school. Um, so I was really interested in empathic accuracy, which is just when one person uh, sort of or trying to assess how how insightfully or um, accurately one person understands another person's emotions. Um, and there was this kind of weird non-correspondence in the literature where, um, you know, people had for a long time asked folks, how empathic are you? And then given them a task where they viewed someone else emoting and rated how, uh, what, what they thought that person felt. And then they asked the person who had been emoting what they felt. And it turned out that people who said that they were empathic were no more likely to get the other person right than people who said that they were relatively unempathic. And so my advisors, Kevin Oxner and Niall Bolger and I were sort of wondering about why that might be. And we thought, well, gosh, there's a dyad here, right? There's a perceiver, that's the person trying to figure out someone else. And then there's the target, the person who a perceiver is trying to figure out. And we thought this whole literature is focused on the perceiver and what makes perceivers accurate as though they're in a vacuum. But maybe there's a lot more going on with targets that we should look at. And so we had a whole, two whole groups of people, targets and perceivers. We measured how expressive um, uh, targets were using a self-report measure called the Berkeley Expressivity Questionnaire. Um, Sanjay, you worked with Oliver, right? So with Oliver mm-hmm. Johns. Yeah, I worked was... with Oliver and James. I didn't work on that questionnaire specifically, but yeah, I was very familiar with it, yeah. So we basically asked this group of targets things like, well, you know, when you feel an emotion, is it readable on your face? Are you the type of person who can hide what you Only feel? Only if it has to Would do you... with hippos. <laughs> <laughs> or swings in Chicago. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, then, and then we asked a bunch of perceivers, you know, how, when, how much, when you are in an argument, how much do you try to see all, all this, you know, every side? Or when you see someone else in distress, how much do you feel moved? Then we videotaped targets while they talked about emotional events in their life, like proposing to their fiancé or losing a loved one. And we had them rate, continue, we then had them watch the videos of themselves and continuously rate how positively or negatively they felt at each moment. Um, and then we had perceivers watch targets and continuously rate how positive or negative they thought they were. And we used a correlation between target self-report and perceivers' inference as a measure of empathic accuracy, which is not something that we invented. I mean, that's Bill Ickes and Bob Levinson had been doing that for, and other people have been doing that for decades. Um, what we found was true, sort of replicating the null result in prior work, there was no correlation between how empathic perceivers said they were and how accurate they were. We found two new things that were not null results. One, um, targets who said that they were more expressive were also more readable. That meant that across perceivers, that basically perceivers did a better job at understanding what a target was experiencing if that target said that they were expressive. 
So in other words, targets may be carrying more of the variants here than perceivers. And second, we found an interaction where um, when targets were uh, expressive, then perceivers who said they were empathic did an especially good job of understanding them. So it was as though, basically, if there's a strong signal out there that a target is producing, then empathic perceivers do a better job at hooking into that signal and understanding targets as a result. Does that, does that all make sense? Yep. Totally. Yeah. So, and so what, was, what did Brett find when he replicated this? Uh, Brett found a lot of nothing. So <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't find the correlation between people's self-reported expressivity and their empathic accuracy. And we also, and we didn't, we, so we did replicate the null effect. Yeah. Um, where we, yeah, so we didn't find a relationship between people's self-reported empathy and empathic accuracy. Although that might, that might not be so, well, I mean, hindsight and also you didn't find this either. Um, but the questions that you ask as part of this empathy inventory don't ask people specifically about empathic accuracy. So we're not asking people like, um, are you good at identifying somebody's emotions in the moment? You ask people things that are like more abstract, like do you care about other people and things like that. But um, you didn't so find the main effect of target expressivity? Nope. That's shocking and because the main... there's a pretty big personality literature showing that extroverts are easier to read. And I would guess the Berkeley Expressivity Questionnaire might correlate with extroversion. And I mean, that's like they're so extroversion predicts being more an easier target to judge in terms of personality judgments. But I would have thought that would extend to mind reading, reading what people are feeling. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. I guess it comes down to a couple of things. So I guess one is how. I mean, uh, Sanjay, you may know a lot about this, but how good are people at rating their expressivity? Um, but then also... Excuse um, me, so- I study self-knowledge. Why are you asking Sanjay? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it should have been a neuroscience study where we just like, assess that. Then we'd really know something. The brain lesion yeah. associated with expressivity. No, I would think that self-reports should be very accurate. It's not a hard thing to know about yourself if you're expressive or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one one thing that's worth mentioning is there are studies that ask people specifically how accurate do you think you are, or even how accurate were you just now, mm-hmm. and th- those also f- generally find a non-correspondence between um, per- uh, perceivers' own uh, view of their own accuracy, and uh, so like when when a perceiver says I was really accurate, or I'm generally a really good judge of people, that doesn't always track with their and- accuracy and in EA paradigms, but it does sometimes track with their narcissism. Right, and to be fair, there aren't really stable individual differences in, in judgmental accuracy. So a lot of literature on the good judge suggests that the most of the variance is not between perceivers. There's a lot of variance yeah. between targets, and, but there aren't people yeah. who are consistently better than other people at judging at least personality. And there might be really complicated interactions, like some people might be good at judging men in a work context or something like that, but overall there aren't really stable individual differences. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that. That sort of yeah. People on the perceiver side, people don't know, and there's not a lot of variance. That's yeah. That's something my colleague Sarah Hodges yeah. uh, and Karen Lewis, uh, a former student here at UO, uh, um, had a paper on that. But so I, uh, on the sort of replication issue, Jamil, what was what was your reaction when you first learned that someone wanted to replicate that study, and then what, what was your reaction when you heard that they they got a big fat null on <laughs> uh, on your your effect well you know so i think that there is obviously you you know you want to be right when you when you publish something and i think we were right in that we reported on our data correctly um and i'm 
I'm still proud of that work. I think that you also hope that you're right in the sense that when other people do the same thing, they'll find it. And it's, and it's definitely, you know, it's, I was nervous when I found out that Alexa and, and Brett were going to replicate the, the work because I didn't know whether they would find the same thing that we did. I hoped that they would, and I, I guess I thought that they would, but, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't know. I and thought then, that we would, too. Yeah, yeah. Which no, made mean, me less nervous. <laughs> and then I was... So I, I guess I experienced the perhaps canonical emotions that one might in a situation like this, which would be nervousness on the front end and disappointment on the back end when there was a non-replication. But I will say that... The process was way more complicated and way more positive than just those two feelings, right? So, so when I first found out, I think Alexa, you contacted me um, independently yeah, first just to That's tell right. me, and yeah. I just remember thinking, well, is I'm so happy that it's Alexa doing it because I trust her so much as a scientist. So I thought, well, this is going to be done, done really well. Um, and that was one you're of like, the first thank God it's not a second stringer doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let's not drag our guests into this debate. I knew she was not a bully. Don't put words or, in her mouth. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, so so I was I was happy about that, and then the process I, I will say was also really um, it was really great, right? So you guys I think sent me the whole protocol for what you were mm-hmm. going to do. And I was asked to review it um, mm-hmm. for... Was this already at JRP? No, that, that might have been at um, the Reproducibility Project at that point. Right. Mm-hmm. So so I received, you know, basically a manuscript, which was a plan for the study. Um, and I provided feedback at that point. And maybe we can get into... Because I do have kind of thoughts on the actual replication. But <clears throat> just mm-hmm. on the process, you know, I was able to provide feedback and, and, and you know... And Alexa and Brett were really responsive to it. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, and I was happy with the design. So I remember thinking, okay, I was felt trusting that it was going to be done right when I knew that Alexa and, and her student were doing it. And then when I saw the protocol, I said, okay, well, this looks really good. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was, I was happy about that. And then when the finding came back, I had another chance to review it. And I, I would say I think the whole process was really collaborative. You know, I felt like we were mm-hmm. working together to figure something out. And, and it, as a result of the replication, I have, you know, I've, I've sort of revised my, my thinking. So, I mean, I'm happy to get into the weeds of, of, of my thoughts on the, on the data as well. I'll also say, though, that there have been other people who have replicated, um, you know, that particular, or have, have rep- replicated that study um, and have found different things. And I'm also happy to get into that. Sorry, I feel like I'm Keep on saying mm. that I'm going to say something, mm. <laughs> but yeah. um, but but this was the best process um, for for having my work replicated because it was so open and I had it, it was very it felt very conversational. I mean, I think that it being you know Alexa and I being friends that was sort of bound to be the case. But I really uh, I felt that the process having it baked into the process that the original authors have yeah. these points of contact. And points of, of where they can provide feedback. I thought that was a really great way to to handle um, a, a replication in general. And I don't know whether they're all like that, but um, mm-hmm. but it was. I felt very involved in the process in a good way. Mm-hmm. Have there been yeah. any negative consequences for you, Jamil? Like, has anybody like implied that you should be ashamed or that it has any negative <laughs> impact on you or? That it looks bad for not, you. Not yet, in part because the non-replication is not published yet, to my mm-hmm. knowledge. So I guess this yeah, is the debut of, of <laughs> me getting outing. run out of town on a rail. Yeah. 
It's only at this moment that it begun. So let me be the first. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it only brings Jamil you. Zaki is a t- no. like, I don't know. I'm curious to hear about people's experiences about what the like. I think it, that it'll bring you some positive attention. Hopefully, that like your work, your work was interesting enough for someone to spend time and effort on replicating it, and that you're not defensive about it, and so on. I think that that says a lot about you in a positive way. Yeah, and I will add that, you know, from from my end, I think that it, it was much easier. So I was nervous. Like, I there was a point at which I felt like, well, why am I doing this and why am I putting my student in this position? Because, you know, like, if we replicate it, that's fine. And, you know, there's, like, more evidence for this effect. But if we don't, it could be, you know, it could cause, like, a conflict. and um, And so, yeah, I was, like, a little bit nervous about how it would go. And yeah, like you say, I mean, like, you know, maybe I'm just saying this because we're tethered together, (laughs) but I, you know, I felt like you handled everything very graciously and were never defensive. And so that made it very easy. Which, which is not to say that I didn't have criticisms of the replication study. So, you know, one thing that I'll say is that, you know, um, Alexa and Brett did a, you know, they did a, I think the standard for that 2008 set of replications was to, if possible, multiply the sample size by 2.5. Is that correct? That could be correct. Or is that, or was that a rule of thumb at some point? I think point? That it was, but I think later on. I'm not sure that was the standard for the RPP, but, I, but I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. Because Alexa and Brett did that with perceivers, right? Mm-hmm. So they had a, approximately, we had, I think, 40 perceivers, and, and I think you guys had 100, 100 and something, right? A little bit over 100, I yeah. think. So it was about two and a half as many perceivers, but they had actually fewer targets than we did in the original study. So we had 11 targets, which is still low, mm-hmm. and they had nine. Uh, is that right, Alexa? Uh, I should have checked. Oh. <laughs> Where are we? I don't we'll pull know. pull up the PDF. It is something like that. Like, that's, that's uh, like, in... That characterizes things accurately. Yeah, yeah. And, and, so, and I mean, the, generally speaking, the the sort of the, the bigger picture goal, right, with replications is just more power. And and I think you know these these crossed interpersonal perception designs are, uh, you know, sometimes kind of hellacious to figure out power for because there's so many things. Because because really, it's it's sample is is a two dimensional yeah. array, right? It's not a just a number of subjects. This was a learning experience for me because it's a design that we never use. And so like I thought power comes from increasing the number of perceivers. Mm-hmm. Um and I thought targets are stimuli. That doesn't really Right. Yeah. So which, I, I was very like naive about thinking which is, about the power for the targets. Right. And that's the sort of I think the assumption that a lot of people make in these social perception studies is that targets are stimuli. But part of the I think the idea behind our original paper was, well, in fact, targets are people too. You know, we, we, should, we should treat them as people. Targets and, are people too. And model them as, as people. I feel and, like... Uh, and so, so I guess, you know, when I remember when I got the initial su- submission for the design saying, you know, you might not find anything on the target end and that could be a false negative, right? Mm-hmm. Because you don't have that much power to detect... Uh, to detect effects that are driven by targets or really interactions between targets and perceivers if you have such a small sample on one of the, you know, in, in one of the groups. And yeah. I, so I maintain that. I, I think that, I, I definitely think that the replication has evidentiary value, but I'm not, but I, and, you know, I, I think that there's also, as I mentioned earlier, there have been other replications 
One in particular in the Netherlands hewed pretty tightly to our original design, of course, having Dutch you know, language videos instead of ours. Um, and they found the, they, they replicated our effective of target expressivity on accuracy, but didn't replicate the interaction between targets and perceivers. We have also, in, in independent samples, replicated the target effect, um, but it, it, we've sometimes and sometimes not replicated the target by perceiver interaction. So mm -hmm. I would say that my, you know, and I think that you learn a lot from replications. And for me, I think what I've, my, you know, I have updated my beliefs. I, I think that there's, I, I, I don't, I'm not confident that there's an interaction between targets and perceivers. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether empathic perceivers really do a better job specifically with reading expressive targets. They might, but I think that if they do, the effect size is probably pretty small. But I do maintain my belief that target expressivity matters, and I think it matters more than perceiver empathy. And so I guess, Alexa, that's one place where I actually feel like I wasn't convinced by your uh, non-replication. Yeah. I feel like what I've learned from this conversation, because I would bet money on the target effect just from what I know of the literature. Um, so what I've learned from this conversation is that Alexa and I spend too much time talking about The Bachelor, not enough time talking about social perception <laughs> research, because I would have told you to have more targets. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, this is also to me a really nice illustration that, you know, and this this is, you know, David Funder calls this like bargain basement bays, right? So So you have priors and then you have evidence and then you have posterior conclusions. And it's like, you guys can ha people can come in with different prior expectations. They can walk away with different conclusions, and they can still agree that like something has a you know provides a certain amount of evidence, and it's not all or none, right? So there's you know it's not like Alexa's rep uh, Alexa and Brett's replication now replaces Jamil's original study. It's like you have to look across those and across the others. And sort of come to a conclusion and you guys can sit there literally wired together and have <laughs> different you know different opinions maybe on the the sort of like the theoretical sort of where you stand um uh while still both agreeing that you know the study you know provides a certain amount of you know sheds a certain amount of light on the phenomenon for both of you yeah right i think that's right yeah, yeah. and you know i mean I to hook back a little bit to a previous conversation about neuroimaging, you know, I, I think that one of the messages that, that I've that I've received from neuroimaging recently, and Sanjay, I think it speaks to your great point about genetics, is that we should be doing less studies, just you know, fewer studies, but make them bigger and more powerful. And with that in mind, you know, my lab now is running a giant kind of combo neuroimaging and behavioral study of accuracy where we've, you know, we're going to scan 150 perceivers and, and we're going to collect um, stimuli from hundreds and potentially thousands of targets. And I, I do hope to have a, a, I think that Alexa's non-replication really, you know, it, it, it definitely made me think, well, I wonder whether this interaction effect is, is real, you know, mm -hmm. and so I hope to have somewhat more kind of definitive yeah. evidence one way or the other and a, and a tighter estimate for the effect size soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wanted, I wanted to shift gears a little bit, although actually I, I think it might be neat if we could sort of uh, uh, cross the two streams a little bit. But I, 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 we also wanted to ask you about this really cool project that you've been working on called the People's Science. And uh, um, so it's a, it's a nonprofit that you co-founded. 
Um, I know in particular about one of the sort of initiatives that you guys are doing in the field because uh, Rita Ludwig is, uh, um, I can't, now I can't remember Rita's title, but she's basically kind of, it's a social media site for scientists to talk to the public. And Rita, uh, who's a, a student in Elliot Berkman's lab and my lab here at the U of O, has been doing a lot of work for the field. Um, but uh, yeah, tell us, uh, um, I mean, the, from my understanding, the people science is kind of this broad initiative trying to get scientists, policymakers, and the general public sort of talking to each other more. Do I have that right? How would you describe it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So before even describing it at all, I should definitely give all credit to Rita and to Maya Bialik, um, and especially to Stephanie Sassy at Harvard, who um, who's really the beating heart of this project at, at this point. She's um, put hundreds and thousands of hours in, into this, especially in a partnership that we developed with the March for Science, um, uh, where we're one of their educational partners now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that this, the, the idea for me is, is very old, just because um, I, I've always sort of uh, enjoyed talking with people way outside of, of our fields about the stuff that, that, I, that I do and the st- stuff that I think about. And um, I guess I just felt like, it, like, A, this is something that more scientists should be doing um, for lots of reasons uh, that I can get into. But, you know, among them that, the, that many non-scientists um, sort of have a growing distrust of science, uh, you know, not to... Not to get political, but um, but it, in in our current administration, especially, um, and also just that that it's our job. I mean, we're funded by you know to the extent that we're on grants, we're funded by taxpayers um, to do our work, um, and I, I think it's it's our job to educate people who are not paying tuition at our universities um, about what we do and and what it could mean for them. So for me, it was sort of like a, a somewhat of a. A personal mission um, to do this type of communication. And so I started doing it. I started writing about my own work and stuff that I was thinking about for Scientific American and and a bunch of different outlets. And I just remember thinking, gosh, this is fun, but it's a lot of work. You know, you got to, you have to pitch these different magazines and outlets. They, they don't even write you back. You know, a, a, even a rejection would be nice, you know. <laughs> um, and And it just took me hours and hours every week to try to develop a, a voice as a as a writer um, you know even writing about the stuff that I was writing about as my day job it was a, a full-time hobby to write about it for other people and I thought well these are very high barriers to entry and and if, if they're in place I I can't in good faith tell a graduate student hey spend 15 hours a week in addition to all the work that you're doing trying to to talk about your work to other people especially since in the academy, that's not really a, a very highly rewarded behavior. How do you... So, so the... Oh. oh, yeah. So, well, just so maybe so listeners know a little bit about it. So the field is one of these projects that you guys developed. And um, it's it's basically a site where scientists can go on and give a sort of readable to the general public description of research. And it, it 
it seems like a, a fair amount of the stuff I've seen is on there is just like you have a paper, your paper comes out, and so you write like a, here's here's my me talking directly to people outside the field. It's not the abstract, which is often somewhat technical. It's certainly not the paper, which is often very technical. Just in terms that that someone who's not an expert in this area could understand, like here's what we did, here's what we found, here's why this was interesting, um, and it's a really interesting idea because it. You know, it, it bypasses those, like you said, there's gatekeepers if you want to go through the press. Um, there's also, I think, and this is something I kind of wanted to ask your your views on, that often it feels like whether it's the press, journalists covering our work or us writing in the press, there's a lot of overselling that goes on. And the field seems like an opportunity, at least. I don't know... Uh, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see sort of where people actually go with it, but it's an opportunity to speak in terms that a scientist feels comfortable with, right? So, you know, you you get this is sort of cycling back a little bit. You know, you guys just had this kind of very measured, nuanced discussion about you know this original study and replication in terms that would, you know, a journalist would just want to <laughs> write like you know groundbreaking study overturned, or, you know, whatever. Um, uh, and and you kind of get to say like, hey, it's complicated and and whatever, um, which I think is a, a really neat opportunity. But uh, you know, I'm curious, Jamil, what you know, what your thoughts are, and also what your experience with seeing this project so far, like, are how are scientists using it, and and sort of. Have you heard from people? Are they like glad that they did it, or is this reaching people? Yeah. So I think you're you're exactly plugging into some of the motives that we had for for the field in particular, right? So I thought here's a way. So the idea was when you when you publish a paper, you know, instead of you, there's there's a very kind of low cost thing that you could do, which is write 500 words about it, you know, or less. Um, just write a, a kind of punchline version of the study in your own words, not overselling, right? Say exactly what you think this study means and, and what you think it adds. Um, so I thought this is something that people could do in a short amount of time that would then be, you know, aggregated and interested readers could kind of head over to hear what scientists are up to, again, in, in their own words. And I, I did think that, you know, I think, Sanjay, you're exactly right, that it's not just that it's hard to get, you know, let's say that you publish a paper and you want to communicate to the public and you say, okay, I know, I'll write a New York Times op-ed about it. You know, it's not just that that's virtually impossible to do, it's that just like publication in mm-hmm. high-impact high journals, the, the kind of, the, the selection criteria are not optimal, right? I mean, you have to jazz it up in some crazy, in, in ways that many scientists might not feel comfortable doing and we might think, you know, is, is inaccurate. So I think that, that what we wanted to offer people is a way to write about their work in measured terms. And one, one sort of use case that I remember thinking of way in the early days was what if you write about a fine, or what if, what if you find something and people in the press Journalists do start writing about it, but you don't like how they're writing about it. Well, we thought, write about it for the field, and then you can point readers to your version of what you found, right? And, and sort of, in fact, counteract kind of this sensationalism that you sometimes see in... I mean, there's a lot of great science journalism. I'm not trying to, um, you know, throw, uh, throw science journalism I wouldn't go that all, but... far. I would say there's some good science journalism. <laughs> but like... Well, I think sci- science journalism is in a really difficult place right now because 
there's a few science journalists whose job who is they're paid as science journalists. They have that's what they do. They have the time to build expertise. But there's so many. There's a difference between a science journalist and a journalist covering science. And you know, I I, I know a lot of journalists, and and so I you know my wife is a journalist, and we're friends with a lot of journalists, and I've kind of seen the changes. And there's so a lot of times it's it's somebody who their specialty isn't science. They're sent by their editor. They're given way too little time for way too little money, and and so they just kind of condense a soundbite version. And so you know the 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 Christy Ashwanden and Ed Youngs of the world mm-hmm. are, are few and far between because there's just not a lot of those jobs out there, and they're extraordinary journalists. And so I think this is also something. It kind of interacts with some trends in the media industry where it's like the you know. It used to be that every newspaper, when there were newspapers, had a health desk and had, you know, one or two or three science reporters. And so there were lots and lots of people doing that. And that that's really contracted. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about your project is that it kind of that's probably not how you think about it, but I. I like the idea. So I, I've basically stopped talking to journalists about my substantive work because I, <laughs> my experience is that nine out of ten really don't want to hear the like more complicated version or the less certain version of what I want to try to tell them. So I like the idea of like just kind of giving up on them and going straight to the public. <laughs> but I mean, I wonder if that actually could have an influence on science journalism because if we're saying like, no, look, let's try to do your job for you. Here's how we would do it if we were writing for the public. Now, okay, you actually have, like, journalism skills and stuff. So maybe if we, like, provide a little bit more input on, like, how the science part of it should be covered and then combine that with their journalism skills, maybe we can have an influence on science journalism, too, through this process. I think that's, A, that's not how I originally (laughs) thought about it, but I like that angle on it, right? I mean, I think that... I, too, am apprehensive when a journalist sort of emails me and says, hey, can I interview you about something? Because you, you never, you know, you can't you, you sort of worry about something that you'll just say offhand that then turns into the pull quote for their, you know, for, for what they say you think, right? And I think that it would it'd be great to be able to point people towards, well, here's here's my description of the work. Yeah. You know, you can follow up with me if, yeah. if, if you want. Yeah. So as as someone who's thought a lot about engaging both the public and policymakers something uh I'm you know I think we're we'd all be curious to to hear your thoughts are uh, on is like so there's been a lot of discussion of replicability and kind of open science and there's been a lot of hand-wringing and I think uh uh you know real disagreement about sort of like whether we should even be having this conversation at all in places where you know the rest of the world can hear, which you know, my, my attitude is like, where else are we going to have it? Like, you know, and wouldn't it be weird to have a conversation about open science not in the open, even if we could, <laughs> which we couldn't? But uh, maybe you know, maybe the like the what should we be doing is sort of an impossible question. But do you have a sense of like how uh, how that conversation? is is intersecting with public communication or could be or should be or where you'd like to see that go so are our blogs and podcasts ruining science for the public i think that's what sanjay is asking <laughs> yeah that's a hard yes yeah for sure uh, well you know i i think that there's it, it's been really interesting to see how much of the coverage of science has shifted to the especially in psychology right i think it's it's in a lopsided way focused on psychology but you know sort of 
there's now a lot of journalism about process instead of content, which I think is is cool. So long as the headline is not something like psychology is broken, um, which it unfortunately tends to be. And of course, journalists and headline writers are weirdly different people, um, you know, or editors rather than the journalists themselves write the headlines. But I think that's it's been great to see a, a focus on process and how the work gets done and what it's like to for scientists to disagree. And, you know, I think it's important to point to science as a living process as opposed to a, a kind of a, a stone tablet of, of outcomes. Right, um, yeah. I think one, one thing that interests me, and I'd, I'd love to get your guys' take on it, is I do, I have had a sense, um, and I, I'm happy to say I've not been a direct, or to my knowledge, I'm sure I've been a direct target of this at some point, but um, no one has said this to my face, but I, I do get the sense that there sometimes is a perception that there's a hydraulic relationship between how good a story is and how good the underlying science is. And mm-hmm. that that if you're... And I, I, I've actually had people who I've talked with, you know, about, do you want to write about your work for the people's science? I've, I've had people say, well, I, I, I would, but I feel like there's, you know, when you write about... You're, when you write about your work for the public, it sort of feels like you're bullshitting, which is, you know, used to be called Saganizing, right? Because Carl Sagan was sort of criticized by people within his field for dumbing dumbing down, you know, astronomy for, for the public. And I, I guess nowadays I feel like that's taken it on a new flavor, which is if you're if you're focused on telling this really shiny story that works for people outside the field, you must not be telling them kind of the complicated truth. Do you guys yeah. see that at all? Think, what do you think about that? I think sometimes people do go too far with that argument. And I'm sure I'm guilty of it too. Of like, you know, any storytelling is like undermines rigor or whatever. But I'm really torn. Like on one hand, I do think we have a responsibility to communicate with the public and that requires kind of stripping things a little bit from the complicated version we would tell scientists. On the other hand, I see a lot of Saganizing within scientific papers, like in the discussion sections. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I don't know. Part of me feels like, we haven't gone far enough in like stripping the storytelling out. Like so many things that might be ready for publication in a specialist journal are not ready for any generalization whatsoever. And we should still publish those things, but let's stop overclaiming even within the paper. So, but I guess I'm more worried about that than I am about like overclaiming to the public. Although I think that is a problem too, but yeah, I don't, I see the tension you're talking about. Like on one hand, I do think we overclaim both to each other in the field and to the mm-hmm. public. On the other hand, I think we shirk our responsibility to communicate with the public. And also, I think we also throw up our hands too easily and say, well, they don't want to hear the, the complicated version. But I think there is a way to try to communicate, not of the full picture. I think that's hard, but something a little bit more complicated than what the not so great science journalists are selling. Yeah, and yeah. I think that, that that job also becomes much easier if, as you say, Samin, like the people who are communicating things to the general public are starting from a pool of things that are already well-established, right? So mm-hmm. I think it is pretty hard to tell a good story about one study um, in a way that does justice to um, like how much you can actually learn from that one study, right? Like, And I think that is what happens often, right, is that uh, journalists are... You know, they're they want to tell the results of these new studies, these novel ideas, and so yeah, they they take one study and they want to make a claim that applies it to people's lives, and it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the where, where storytelling, yeah, where storytelling is most concerning is where 
it's used to drive the science. Mm. So either at the outset, someone has a story they want to tell. And, and you know, I've, I've talked to people who are in the, I mean, I, this, I have one conversation in particular that sort of stands out in my mind I had with someone once who, who someone who I respect as, a lot as a scientist, but we were chatting about the next thing they were going to work on. And they're kind of talking and they, and they go like, and, and the story I want to tell is, mm. Oh. And and all of a sudden, and then they started describing, and it's like, well, what if you don't <laughs> find the thing that tells the story? And it was kind of like, and I started thinking, like, wow, you've always been able to tell the story, <laughs> you know. Anyway, I mean, I I don't want to implicate this person, but but I think that you know, the, so at the planning phases, I think you know, Daryl Bem's infamous chapter on how to write was mm-hmm. a, about sort of like, you know, not you know, leaving out certain things and whatever. I think a lot of p hacking gets motivated by kind of wanting to tell a certain kind of story. And I agree, like, I think that, but even, even at the end, there's like a, there's a sort of cheap story that we tell a lot, which is a pretty effective one. Um, and, and some people are really talented at telling this kind of story, but it's often done very cheaply, which is like, you always thought this, <laughs> but maybe it's this. And then here's a study that doesn't actually have a chance of falsifying it, but if it comes out <laughs> yeah. a certain way, will be a demonstration. And now look at me, I'm a fucking genius, <laughs> you know? And, and that's kind of like a way of, of telling a story. Um, and I, I, to me, that, that like I recognize that kind of uh, um, that form when it's coming out, and I, I get very cynical when I see that. And I think the like an actual talented scientific storyteller is someone that can make you interested in the process, that mm-hmm. can make you interested in the ambiguity. That's why, like some of I think you know some of our favorite science journalists, you know, and, and I know the three of us have talked about this before. And I think a lot of the the people that we all have in common are people that are really good at telling a really compelling story about something that maybe doesn't wrap up in a little bow at the mm-hmm. end. Can I tell an uncharacteristically positive for me story? <laughs> so I remember like this really stuck with me. So I read an article that Keith Payne wrote for Scientific American. And I remember because this was while I was on sabbatical and I thought I was going to write a pop psych book. And then I quickly abandoned that idea because I was like, I don't want to basically like be a slut. And then I read this article that Keith Payne wrote in Scientific American called The Myth of Executive Stress. And it was focusing a lot on like Sapolsky's work on like basically that being the top dog is not actually stressful and we need to like stop spreading that myth. Um, and it kind of fits what you were saying, Sandra. Like you might have always thought this, but it's not true. But it was written so well and I thought it captured like the science really well. And I was also impressed that as far as I could tell, it wasn't, wasn't about Keith Payne's own research, which impressed me too, that he was spending time popularizing in a responsible way, something that was, and it wasn't himself, right? He wasn't popularizing himself. So I thought that was a really neat example of, of, yeah, like a scientist investing time in doing communication well. Um, That's so cool that Keith did that. And I've always, I've always thought that would be a really interesting model that we hardly ever do. Um, But Brian Greene, the, the physicist I've read, a couple of his books. It's been a while now, but he he does that a lot where he writes these books and he goes and interviews his colleagues and writes about their work. And he writes in a really engaging, compelling way for the general public. And it's really cool. And I remember like a long time ago reading one of his books and thinking like, you know, having it sort of, and I've never followed up on this, but, you know, thinking like, wow, like I, I bet I could write a better book 
about like stereotyping or you know about something that's not my area because I could talk to the scientist. It's it's like teaching, right? It's like when I teach intro to psych, I think some of my worst intro to psych lectures are the ones on <laughs> what I do because yeah. I can't get out of the weeds. But I can, you know, when I teach about other things, I can I sort of know enough to kind of understand it. Um, but then I, I don't get sort of caught up in in kind of you know uh, um, in in sort of the details. That's really cool that Keith did that. Yeah. So, so if if I could just jump, in. So, so so let me let me struggle um, publicly here because because I guess you you guys have said several things that drive your cynicism meter up, and all of those things are what I'm doing. <laughs> Skepticism, right now. not cynicism. Yeah. <laughs> um, like what? So so I'm spending this entire year sluttily <laughs> writing a book about my field of interest and research where I say, hey, you thought empathy worked one way, but it turns out it works another way. So how are you so dealing with, I mean, I, I got very, very... Wait, I, didn't, I just, didn't Paul Bloom already write that book? Uh, oh, you mean Paul? Yeah. Paul Bloom? Uh, yeah, 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 he just wrote... A, he, he might think that he wrote that book, but, but I'm actually writing it. You might think that Paul Bloom wrote this book, but, but yeah. wrong. Yeah, right. So I only dipped my toe in like what it would be like to write a popular book, but I immediately got the impression that I wouldn't have a lot of control over not only what was in the book, but also how it got popularized and like advertising and marketing and blah blah blah, and that really turned me off so like how Mm -hmm. i guess if you feel confident that you're maintaining control over the content of the book and how it's marketed that would alleviate a lot of my concerns about it yeah i mean i i do feel a lot of control i have a very you know i have a wonderful editor and we have a really uh, sort of very trusting relationship Uh, i do know you know one of my friends who wrote wrote a book um and ended up not feeling that he had control, mm-hmm. and so pulled away from his, you know, broke contract, mm-hmm. and ended up self-publishing the book instead of going through mm-hmm. the the house that was going to publish it. So I certainly, I mean, if at any point I felt that the control over that, you know, that deep part of the process was taken away from me, I, I would I would not feel comfortable. But so far, I have. I mean, I think for for me, part of it is well, I mean. One of the things about me is that I actually always wanted to be a writer way before I ever wanted to be a psychologist. I wanted to write fiction, and I all through college was a fiction writer. So it, I think it was sort of, it was, it was it was always going to happen that I was going to write a, a book, and I've tried to focus on a, a lot on, on, on journalism in, in the project. So talking about, um, you know, not doing anecdotes, like one, like the not to diss him, but, you know, not to do the Gladwellian what it, it's story study lesson, that formula where it's like very pat and it's kind of got everything has a bow around it. You know, sort of I'm doing embedded journalism with people who try to do empathy building for like, um, you know, police departments and mm. schools and um, and physicians and stuff. But but I will say that I've actually found that writing about my field is harder than writing about about a, a different part of, um, of psychology because, well, because you're in the weeds, but I actually have found that if, at the end of the day, even though it's more painful, you can, in my opinion, and you guys can trash the book when it comes out <laughs> if you want, but but in my opinion, you, I, there have been moments, some of my happiest moments writing the book were, were when I feel like, gosh, I really did get the process down. You know, I really did talk about how an idea changed um, within the literature and how people realized that they were wrong and who came along next and, and what it was that they did that 
you know, that, that, um, that changed people's thinking. Um, and the, the last thing that I'll, that I'll say about for, for now is that, you know, and Alexa and I were talking about this a long time ago. You know, I'm hoping to um, build into the kind of build in a section, you know, as part of the back matter, like along with the index, there would be like a uh, basically a, a replicability table, right? So I want to pull all the findings that I describe in any detail and basically say, you know, what's has anyone tried to replicate this? Mm-hmm. How has it gone? Um, and, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I, I think that there's ways to make deep narrative compatible with, with nuance, with, with a respect for... Um, for the com- compli- sort of complicated nature of the phenomenon. Yeah, that that sounds super cool. And I, I have to say, like, you know, you, <laughs> you you joked about our cynicism, and and you know, uh, um, I uh, maybe I'm sometimes guilty of that, but I'm also really excited that someone that cares about those kinds of issues, about replicability, about transparency, about open science, and somebody that cares about engaging with the public is diving into to trying to talk about uh, your own work with the public, because I think uh, that, uh, that bodes well, and maybe we'll have you back on when, uh, when the book comes out. <laughs> and Alexa will um, try to replicate well, we it and find pro- a whole lot of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, I, I think we're out of time, but thank you so much, Jamil, for joining us. Uh, it's, it's really been a lot of fun having you on and, and talking about all this stuff. And, and really good luck with the book project. And, and uh, we, uh, please keep us up to date. Use about protection. How that <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Thanks fun. for thanks. coming on. Well, and thanks everybody for listening to The Black Goat. Uh, you can find us on the web at theblackgoatpodcast.com. You can email us, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter, at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, too. And thank you all for listening, and goodbye until next time.